go ahead and uh, open up on a word of prayer this morning, and we'll get into our study in Romans. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning, and we just give you praise for uh, this opportunity to be together as believers. We thank you, Lord, for this church that you've made us a part of. We thank you, Lord, for this uh, time that we can gather each and every week and pray, Lord, that you would help us to just honor you and uh, bring glory to you, Lord, with the things that we do and say here this morning. Just pray that it would be a time that would be uh, pleasing to you in every way. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans. We thank you for the truth that um, you have given us here through the Apostle Paul. And we just pray, Lord, that as we study, we would take these truths in, that we would uh, just know how to apply them to our lives and just be able to uh, honor you uh, with everything that we do as we as we leave here and as we uh, walk our daily walk uh, to live and uh, glorify you. We thank you, Lord, again for this time. Pray that you'd be with us and uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 3. In your Bibles this morning. In our study last week, we moved into the second major section of the book of Romans, starting in verse 21 of chapter 3. In this section that we are now in, uh, from verses verses 21 of chapter 3 through chapter 5, is all about justification. We spent over two chapters talking about sin, talking about how mankind in and of himself rejects God, stands condemned before God apart from the righteousness of God. In fact, the previous section started off in verse 18 of chapter 1, telling us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Man does not measure up to the righteousness of God. In fact, he lives his life running from God, turning aside from God, going after his own way and giving himself the glory that belongs to God. That is how man exists. That's how man exists today. That's how man has existed since the beginning of creation. And that's how you and I, standing here today as believers in Jesus Christ, that is what we were a part of before we were saved. It's what was true of us prior to salvation. So apart from God, that is who man is. But starting in verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul has started to tell us how God works to fix that problem that man has caused in his sin. And that is by way of justification, a term that we talked about last time. Justification means to declare someone to be righteous. It's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's a word that in the original Greek language includes the word for righteousness in it. So it really means that one is declared to match up to the righteousness of God. And we saw that as we looked at verses 21 through 24 last week. If you remember when we started our last lesson, we said that verses 21 through 26 are really one paragraph, a paragraph that forms really the heart of the entire letter. And some think that it's a paragraph that forms the heart of Christianity itself, which is a statement that's hard to argue because of the importance of the content that we find here in these six verses. But within this paragraph, we have God declaring sinners, those who are lost, those that have rejected him, to be righteous, but not on their own, not by their own doing, but they are declared righteous by faith. 
He started off in verse 21 with talking about how God's righteousness is, is manifested apart from the law. The law served a purpose in providing a knowledge of sin, but it never had the ability to justify someone, to save someone. Righteousness always came by faith, which is what we saw in verse 22, where he said, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Righteousness comes by faith, and that faith is in the work of of the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. After a reminder in verse 23 of where we all stand apart from faith in Christ, having sinned, falling well short of God's glory, he went on in verse 24 to talk more about that righteousness. He said, being justified, declared righteous, as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Being declared righteous as a gift by his grace, that undeserved gift of God, unmerited, without cause, we talked about. That gift that he provided by sending his own son to be a ransom for our sins. Verse 24 gave us the second big word that we had in this section, the important word that we have to remember here. That word, uh, the first word being justification, the second word is now redemption. Redemption being a word that means to pay a price to set something or someone free. In our case, it was the payment that Jesus Christ made on the cross that was on our behalf, making that payment for us. It's the picture of how slavery worked back in the Greek and Roman days, where someone was enslaved to someone else, but they could be purchased. A payment could be made that would secure their freedom. Someone would come in, pay their master whatever his price was, and they would be freed from that slavery. And that's the same idea here. That's what redemption is. We talked a few lessons ago about how man isn't just a sinner. We talk about man being a sinner, but he's not just a sinner, but he's one who is under sin. And we saw this back in verse 9 of chapter 3. That means that he is enslaved to it. He is under the control or the authority of sin. Paul will go on to talk about how um, he'll, he'll go on to talk about that more when we get to chapter six. We'll see that the unrighteous are enslaved to their sins. So there you see the idea: unrighteous men and women aren't free. They claim to be free. They say, "Oh, I don't want to believe in God because I want to remain free," but they aren't free. They are enslaved to sin, and as those enslaved to sin, free from responsibility to God, there is a price that they must pay for their sins. And that price is death. Paul will say at the end of chapter 6, the very last verse, for the wages of sin is death. So in redemption, the ransom that Jesus paid on our behalf was the price that we owed. We owed the price of death, and that's exactly what Jesus paid for us. He took that payment on his own body. Turn with me over to the book of 1 Peter. I know we're still in our introduction, but this all flows together. So, But in 1 Peter chapter 2, for just a minute, we looked at several verses at the end of our last lesson that dealt with the idea of Christ redeeming us. We saw Ephesians 1.7, 1 Timothy 2.6, Matthew 20.28. Titus 2.14 is another one that we didn't look at, but it's another one that deals with it. 
But here in 1 Peter chapter 2, while we don't have the word redeemed or ransom, we have the same idea down in verse 24. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Here, Peter, tell, Peter is telling us the same thing. He bore our sins on his body on the cross. He paid that penalty that we owed, that we should have paid. He paid for that for us on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Again, that payment made, that wage that our sins earned, taken care of, freed from being under the power of sin, and now being able to live to righteousness, something that we could not do before. His wounds providing healing for us, fixing that relationship that was broken between us and God. So back in Romans 3, that is the gift. That gift by His grace that Paul is talking about in verse 24. It's not something that we earned. Not in any way. It was totally an unmerited, undeserved gift from God. So that's what He did. And we've seen that righteousness is provided to us by faith. And it's by faith in what Christ did for us on the cross. But there's a question here. And we've asked a few of these questions before already. But the question is, why was that necessary? Why did Jesus die on the cross for my sins? Why did he have to do that? If God was going to give a gift, right? If we talk about it being a gift, why didn't he just say, okay, never mind. Everyone's absolved. Everyone gets a pass. You're all righteous now. Remember back when we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul started off that chapter talking about how God has a desire to see all men saved. So why not just save all men? Why not just lower his standard and say, okay, well, forget all that judgment stuff. Everyone's righteous now. The standard was up here. Nobody was meet, meeting it. So why don't I just lower it down here where everyone's at? A holy and righteous God could not just do that. And that's what we're going to see. That's what he's going to explain next, starting in verse 25, explaining how Christ paying the penalty for our sins satisfied the demands of his holiness and his righteousness. And so in verse 25, we pick up as a continuation of what we have in verse 24. The very end of verse 24, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So the first thing that we see here in verse 25 is that Christ's redemption, his redemptive act, what do we have? It was God displaying him publicly. Two things to note right there. First off, God the Father was at work in this. This was God the Father's sovereign work in salvation. Of course, God is God. God the Father, God the Son, they are all God, right? He is God. But the emphasis that Paul makes clear here is that this was the work of the Father to publicly display the Son in his redemptive work. And that's the second thing that we note, is that it was a public display. He did this publicly. So what does that mean? 
It means that the redemptive work of Christ has been revealed. It has been made known to everyone, everywhere. Remember back in verse 21. There we had God's righteousness being manifested. It was revealed apart from the law. But it had been testified to by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness was made known through what he had revealed in his word. His word pointed to his future redemptive work. We looked at Isaiah 53 last time, several verses in Isaiah 53, the prophecy there concerning the Messiah. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, it says in verse 6. He was cut off, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, it said in verse 8. My servant will justify the many as he will hear their iniquities, uh, bear their iniquities, sorry, verse 11. Those were all things prophesied before Christ came. Things that God had told the people were coming. The prophets testified to those facts, to his redemptive work. So how does that fit here? God had promised a Savior, one who would come and take away sins. And Jesus Christ, during Passover, literally in front of the entire Jewish nation, as well as the Roman world, was hung on a cross in front of them all. His death could not have been more public. It was the first century equivalent to a live internet feed when they crucified him. He didn't die home alone somewhere with no fanfare in some back alley or even sitting in a prison cell somewhere. He died in front of the entire Jewish nation who was sitting there crying out, crucify him. So God's promise of a coming Savior to die for the sins of transgressors was publicly displayed. He came to earth and died for sins just as God had promised that he would. Now again, this still doesn't answer the question. How does that satisfy a righteous and holy God? Well, that comes next. God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And there's our word for the day. Propitiation. I warned you last week that it was coming. What is propitiation? Besides one of those words that when we read it, we have a tendency to skip over it because it sounds complicated. Propitiation. Okay, I'll go buy that one. If we were to break it down to just a single word as a comparison, we might say satisfaction or appeasement. Christ was displayed as a satisfaction to satisfy something. A more in-depth description of it would be a turning away of anger or a turning away of wrath. Now again, we read it earlier, but begin, remember the very beginning, the very first verse of the last section, verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is man's situation? He is under the wrath, the anger of God. Now we have propitiation, a turning away or satisfying of God's anger, of God's wrath. That's what Christ's redemptive act accomplishes. It turns away the anger of God for those who are redeemed. Man owes a great debt, right? We've seen that, a debt that can only be paid by his death. Jesus Christ paid the debt that man owed by the shedding of his blood on the cross, his work of redemption. 
that redemptive work serves to satisfy the anger that God has against sinful man, to turn that anger away. Because it is a perfect sacrifice that pays that debt, satisfies the requirements of a holy and righteous God. Faith in that redemptive work then brings justification to those who believe. Where God credits the believer with his own righteousness, having placed their faith in his own redemptive work on the cross. That's the picture that we're talking about here, propitiation. It's not a common word. It's not even a word that rolls off the tongue very easily. It's a very technical word. But as believers, it's the word that we all need to have a general understanding of because it is vital to the plan of salvation. God's wrath had to be satisfied. In order for mankind's sin problem to be fixed, the penalty of sin must be paid. For the wrath of God incurred by that sin must be satisfied. If there is is to be any type of reconciliation between God and man, propitiation must occur. One of the things that makes the idea of propitiation difficult for people is that we need to understand that God is angry. Man is under God's wrath because of his sin. And that's one of the things that's distasteful to people. And we talked about this in the last section. It's a subject that people stumble over all the time because they don't like to think of an angry God. You shouldn't like to think of an angry God, but it's true. And the one way, and one way that they make themselves feel better about it is by saying things like, well, it's God the Father that's angry with us. So God the Son stepped in and got between us and his dad and appeases his father's anger. Jesus is on our side. Jesus is the one who truly loves us, and he's just trying to make dad happy. We need to understand there is no concept of God the Father being angry, but, the, but God the Son not being angry with us. God was angry. God is angry with sin. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is angry with sin. People talk sometimes about the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Right? Well, I don't, want to, I don't like reading the Old Testament because the God in the Old Testament is not the God that I like to think of. I want to believe in the New Testament God, not the Old Testament angry and wrathful God. You understand it's the same God. It's God. God is no different between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in the New Testament, the redemptive act of the cross has been provided as a means of salvation. However, for those who don't accept it, don't believe in it, there is still the wrath of God that they will contend with. God will judge sinners. And that's what the entire last section was all about. There is no distinction. There is no partiality. The unrighteous sinners will be judged. Again, we get into the deception of comparisons sometimes. Well, my sin's not that bad. Sure, I've sinned, but if you look at all the good things I've done, my scale balances more towards the good than the bad, right? People use those excuses. But that's not how it works. Not at all. Have you sinned? Yes. Then you are under the wrath of God. Doesn't matter the sin. Doesn't matter the frequency of the sin. You've sinned. You fall short of God's glory. You are destined for an eternal hell. That is the reason that God provided redemption. 
He didn't have to provide redemption at all, but if he was going to enact a plan to redeem mankind, make a plan that would allow mankind to be reconciled to himself in any way, then he had to provide that himself. On our behalf, he had to make that work. We could not accomplish that on our own. That's one of the things that we talked about last time, how remarkable it is that even in his anger, even in his wrath, even though we have rejected him, he still provided a means of salvation. He still died on the cross for our sins, provided that propitiation, that way out of our own mess of a sin problem. Look with me over in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, we see the same idea of propitiation there. John tells us, in, the, in verse 1 of John, 1 John chapter 2, John tells us that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate with the Father. And then he goes on in verse 2, and he says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So you see here, the provision has been made, the propitiation for our sins, for the sins of the whole world, he says. The redemptive act of Christ on the cross, Jesus Christ the righteous, is a provision that is sufficient to cover the sins of everyone who will believe, of the whole world. That's what makes it possible for anyone to be forgiven. Look over in chapter 4 of 1 John, down in the ninth verse of 1 John 4. We see the same thing there. He says, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you see here, once again, we have the same, the both concepts, the wrath of God and the love of God in the same context. People talk about, well, if he's wrathful, he can't be loving. If he's loving, he can't be wrathful. We have the, them both right here. We did not love God. We weren't seeking God out. God loved us. And in what way did he love us? By providing his son to be the satisfaction for his wrath. He was angry against us. But in his love, he provided his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. His holiness, his righteousness required that there be wrath for the unrighteous. It was no small thing. Sin is no small thing. Because all sin is a rejection of God. It is a turning from him. And his holiness and his righteousness require a payment for that sin. Payment for sin has to be made. His wrath is totally in line with his character. But the amazing thing, again, is that he provided a solution. He could have just instantly, on the spot, exacted payment for each and every sin. You sinned, you're out, gone, judged, dead, wiped out. That would have been just. That would have satisfied his righteousness. But in his love, he not only provided a sacrifice, but he manifests patience. If you remember back in chapter 2, we saw this in verse 4 of chapter 2. 
where he asks the question, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God not judging sinners on the spot, that is kindness, that is tolerance, that is patience with them. Providing time for repentance, time for acceptance of the gift of forgiveness that he has provided. That's where we're at. That's where this all comes together. The wrath of God must be satisfied. And Jesus Christ's work on the cross provided that satisfaction. Now the question is asked, does that mean that the whole world is saved? Unfortunately not. Because there are still those who will not believe. The majority of people will not believe. They won't accept the gift that God has provided. They're like those hikers that we talked about a couple of different times. The hikers that are out lost in the woods and they're running away from the very search party that is there to rescue them. They hear the voices of the search party and that drives them away from it. Even though salvation is right there at hand, they still reject it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Now with the concept of propitiation, there is a relationship here between Christ's sacrifice and the Old Testament sacrifices that were under the law. And I, and I want to at least touch on this. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I could probably do a whole lesson on just this, but I'm going to try to break this down um, quickly here. But I want to touch on this because of Paul making clear delineation between the law and the justification that is found apart from the law. Right. So in the book of Hebrews... The writer of Hebrews mentions the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 9, verse 5, where he says, And above it, the Ark of the Covenant, above the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot, know, uh, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, why do we care about that? It's because the word mercy seat that he uses there is the same word that is used for propitiation in Romans 3.25. So above the Ark of the Covenant was the propitiation, the mercy seat. Now, what does that have to do with anything? The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies in the temple, behind the second veil. Basically, it was the place where not just anyone could go, but only the high priest could enter in there. And the high priest could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. The mercy seat of the Ark was where God met with Israel to deal with their sin. It was the high priest's job to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The mercy seat was where God was propitiated. His wrath was turned away from the nation because, of the, high, because the high priest would offer that sacrifice to appease God. The high priest would go in, he would have both a bull and a goat, a ram, and with the bull, he would make sacrifices for his own sins. Why? Because he had sins, right? He was a man. He was the high priest. So he would have to offer the bull to atone for his own sins by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat of the ark. Then he would make atonement for the sins of Israel with the blood of the goat by doing the same thing, sprinkling blood on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel. 
So that's where, where the phrase comes in, the blood of bulls and goats. And that's what was required for the atonement of the sins of Israel. But the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. The nation was supposed to understand that by providing these animals as a sacrifice, this was a reminder of the sin. It was an act of obedience on their part. But it was a looking ahead to the permanent sacrifice that would be provided for them one day. The, holy, or the high priest would have to do this every year. Right? It was a constant thing. Sins were never completely atoned for this way because it had to be repeated over and over and over again, year after year. But the key thing is, the mercy seat was that place of propitiation. Year after year, God's wrath was satisfied until the next year. Not permanently, but symbolically through those animal sacrifices. Now, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 9. I said this would be brief. Brief is relative, right? It's not going to take the rest of the time. We'll put it that way. We'll look over in Hebrews 9. I think we best, best if we look at a part of this together. I read you verse 5, and how he talks about the sacrifice in the temple down from there. But look at what he picks up within verse 11 of Hebrews 9. He says, But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, goats and bulls, bulls and goats, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So here we see now that we have Christ as the perfect high priest, but things are now a little different. The tabernacle, it says, isn't on earth. It's in heaven, the perfect tabernacle that's not made with hands. In heaven is now where God meets with man because Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's our advocate, 1 John 2.1 tells us. The previous holy of holies on earth was representative of this one. That one is no longer needed. But you notice in verse 12... It wasn't through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, not repeatedly, not over and over again, but one time. Why? Because at the end of the verse, having obtained eternal redemption, that is the perfect sacrifice that he was able to provide. He goes on in verse 13, making a comparison there. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of bulls and goats provided the temporary cleansing, the temporary turning aside of God's wrath, symbolic of what was to come with Christ's death on the cross. And if that was symbolic of Christ's death, so how much more will the blood of Christ, the unblemished, perfect sacrifice, be actually able to cleanse? That's the rhetorical question asked. Those, are, those other sacrifices were simply anticipating the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So when he came... Providing that perfect sacrifice, the other sacrifices ceased to be necessary. 
Remember how John the Baptist referred to Jesus when he saw him in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. The Lamb that God personally provided. After Him, there would never be a need for another. So back in Romans 3. You see, that's the difference between Christ as the propitiation and the propitiation of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That propitiation, turning away of God's wrath, was simply pointing to this one, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Those temporary sacrifices of bulls and goats were pointing the way to the perfect sacrifice from the spotless Lamb of God. The wrath of God is turned away from us because Jesus Christ took that wrath upon himself. He was the public display of God's wrath upon the cross. His blood shed for the world fully and finally making that final atoning sacrifice. Propitiation in blood. Blood was required. Death was required. And Christ made that payment on our behalf. So back in Romans 3, we have the phrase, Next, in verse 25, in his blood through faith, which is the same as what we've talked about previously. It's propitiation in his blood, and it's through faith. It's not faith in his physical blood, but it's in his saving act, in the gospel, what he did on our behalf. Same as what we saw in verse 16 of chapter 1, right? The the theme verse of the entire letter, the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. You see, the provision made was made for the whole world. We saw that in 1 John chapter 2, but it's not applied to someone unless they believe, unless they have faith. That's it. That is how the problem is fixed. You have to understand that you are fallen, that you have a sin problem, that you are a sinner, then you need to repent of that and believe in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, and unless there is that belief, then the price that he paid isn't applied to your account. Then a person is still lost in their sins. You know, a few months ago, you may remember this, it was in the news everywhere, someone won a billion dollars in the lottery, right? There was a lottery that was a billion dollars, and a winning ticket was sold. Now, the last I heard in the last week, unless something's changed in the last few days, the ticket hadn't been claimed. Hadn't been turned in. The prize hadn't been claimed. Ticket was sold. The payment is there. It's ready and waiting, but it's unclaimed. What happens if the person who won it just doesn't turn in that ticket? Maybe they lost it. Maybe they don't even know they have it. Maybe it's under their seat in their car somewhere. Maybe they just don't want the money. Who knows? But either way, if they don't claim it, turn in their ticket, then what happens? They don't get the money, right? They're a billion-dollar winner who doesn't get a billion dollars, even though it's there waiting for them. The world has been given a winning lottery ticket available to anyone who will take it, anyone who will accept it. The payment for it has already been made, just like the money from that billion-dollar jackpot is still sitting there somewhere, in a bank somewhere, or in... O's and one somewhere, somewhere in the cloud. Some ready for someone to just come in and take it home. 
Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sins. He already made the the payment that satisfies God's wrath. Final sacrifice that ever needed to be made. Now, people simply need to believe, put their faith in it. That was his point in chapter 1, verse 16, and that was his point in verse 22 of chapter 3. Salvation comes through faith in the gospel of Christ, and it's available to whoever believes it. Okay, so we need to move on. First half of the first verse. It's not looking good, is it? But we're going to get moving here. Christ dying on the cross was necessary to turn away the wrath of God. And Paul goes on. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So when we talked about earlier about the Holy of Holies and the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled on the mercy seat, remember, that did not take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats could never do that. couldn't remove those sins. But yet, people back in the Old Testament died, didn't they? Moses died. David died. Solomon died. Daniel. Isaiah. They all died. What about their sins? What does that mean for them? It means that when they died, if they had believed, God was acting in this sense that he talks about here of forbearance or tolerance that he's mentioning here. He was staying his final judgment. Remember back in verse 4 of chapter 2, which I read earlier, where it said, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? The word for tolerance in that verse is the same word used here for forbearance. There was a delay in God's dealing with those sins. It was put off for a time until the fullness of the time came, which Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 4, for the Son to come into the world. In the Old Testament, the plan of God was always looking forward to the Son. It was always based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God didn't send Jesus to earth to die as his plan B or C or D. He didn't sit up in heaven and think to himself, well, this isn't working. They're obviously not going to get there on their own, so I guess I need to come up with something else for them. This was always the plan. The faith that people placed in him, even in the Old Testament, that faith was credited to them as righteousness based on the coming expectation of the propitiation that was going to be made on their behalf in the work of Christ on the cross. God knew it was coming. He knew exactly when and where and how it was coming, it was no mystery to him. The righteous judgment for sins was delayed even for those who had died. So when Jesus died on the cross and, his, and he was publicly displayed as the propitiation for sins, that was a public display of the righteousness of God because it showed the world, everyone, everywhere, in every time that God was judging those sins and that the payment of death was being made for those sins in his son on the cross sins that had previously been passed over and every sin that was yet to come it all focused right there on the cross 
And so in verse 26, he continues on with the same thinking, for he says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. And this is the same thing. It was his demonstration to pay for those past sins at the present time, at the cross. You see, with God passing over those sins, with God not judging those sins immediately, with with those sins being gotten away with, the very character of God was at stake there. In passing over those sins and allowing them to continue without judgment, the character of God was at risk, you could say, because of this. We've already seen in Romans verse 4 of chapter 2 a couple of times, the world thinks lightly of the fact that God allows sin to go on, even though it's an act of mercy and kindness. Right? The wicked continue in their sin, and they think that they're getting away with it. They think that there's going to be no repercussions. They think that there's no judgment. And you look at the world today, and they laugh at God, right? Because they don't see any judgment for what they're doing. But God, sending his own son to die, showed the penalty paid before all men. Showed those sins paid for with the blood of his son. That is a manifestation of his righteousness because it showed the cost of sin and that judgment was necessary. Every sin was paid for on that tree. Now once again, does that mean that every person is saved? Not at all. Why? Because again, that payment is only applied by faith. Look at the last phrase, the last section of verse 26. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God must be just, righteous, in order to be the one who justifies, declares others to be righteous, right? Remember the, 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 the yardstick analogy that I've used before, right? God is that yardstick. He has to be a perfect yard, 36 inches, in order to show that anything that compares to him is either a yard or it's not. He has to be the yard first. He demonstrates his righteousness and thus shows himself to be righteous, and therefore he is able to. To justify others. Justify who? Everyone? The one who has faith in Jesus. This is the greatest gift. The greatest news the world has ever seen. But it also shows the greatest tragedy. Why? Because while having faith is all that is necessary in order to be declared righteous, there are so many who won't do it. They refuse to do it. God is handing out winning lottery tickets. And Jesus Christ put enough money in the bank to cover every single one of them. It's not just a billion dollars that everybody in the world gets to share. He's put a billion dollars in the bank for every single person on earth. And all they have to do is believe. Turn in that ticket. Believe in the gospel. It's there and it's available to all if they would only believe in it. That provision, the sacrifice that Jesus paid on their behalf is not applied to them unless they believe it. And what will happen if they don't? They will end up making the payment themselves. Making that same payment that Jesus already took upon himself and paying it off themselves, separated from God in hell for all eternity. That's the tragedy of it. So that's the opening paragraph on justification by faith, verses 21 through 26. Many great things there. 
the inner workings on the reasons for what God did, uh, for why God did what he did on our behalf. In fact, it's been pointed out that that would be a great paragraph if you were so inclined to commit to memory for anyone wanting to memorize something in a discipleship group. But now we're not quite done. We have time left, um, and I'm going to try to get to the end of the chapter. I know, surprising, right? Um, We're going to try to get through these last verses as well. And and here in the the end of the chapter, Paul now is going to ask several questions that will set us up for chapter 4, and he's going to expand on the idea of faith and how it's faith and faith alone that applies this to our account. So he just told us how it works and why it works. Now the emphasis is going to be on our part in this whole equation. And that all boils down to what we've already talked about, faith. Faith and faith alone is going to be the main emphasis for the rest of the chapter and then into uh, chapter 4 as well. So our part is nothing more than faith in what God has done, which we've already seen. So for the rest of the chapter, we see here Paul's question and answer format again. Right? We've seen this a couple of times already. He's going to ask three different questions or three questions in, uh, questions in three different areas. And so the first one, verse 27, he says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. So the first thing he talks about here is boasting. Where then is boasting? And the idea is... Well, if this is the way God did it, what do we have to boast in? Where's boasting? What type of credit can I take in this whole plan? And he answers it simply right off the bat. It's excluded. There is no boasting. Why? Because we have absolutely nothing to boast about. That's the boasting that he's talking about here. Our boasting, what we have to boast about here. In salvation, we could do nothing. We contributed nothing except the sin part. We contributed the big part. Well, it's maybe not the big part, but we contributed the part that needed fixing. But God did all the work, and that's what we've just seen in the previous six verses. It's His righteousness, His act of redemption, His work in providing the propitiation through His Son. He is the just and the justifier. He's the one that's righteous and the one that can declare others to be righteous. Salvation coming to us was a gift by His grace. So where is boasting? It's excluded. It doesn't exist. He mentions the law again here. There's a play on the word law because he's already talked about the law. Right? Was it a law of works? No. He's already said that too. The law had nothing to do with our justification. It didn't save us. The works of the law couldn't save us. So what did? He says a law of faith. And this is his play on the word law. It's faith is really what he's saying here. Not a law that has you do something, but simply a law or a rule that says you must believe. And again, that's consistent with what he said since verse 16 of chapter 1. You must believe. So as far as boasting goes... The only boasting that we could possibly do would be to boast in what God has done for us. Because we did nothing. Nothing at all. And that's consistent throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. We won't turn there, but Paul talks about how God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And I hate to tell you this, but that's us, right? You and me, we're the foolish things of the world. 
Why? Because he says in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God did the work. All the work that had to be done, that was able to be done in the process of salvation. God did it. So if there's any boasting to be done, it's not by us. It's not on our part. It's in God and in what he has done. Paul will continue with this in in chapter 4 when he talks about Abraham. In verse 2 he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And we'll develop this in our next lesson. But basically, if salvation was by works, then Abraham could boast in something. But it wasn't. Not before God. If there is any work that is required in salvation, circumcision, baptism, sacraments, anything at all, then I have something to boast in, don't I? Even if it's just 5% of the process. Well, this is the little part that God gave me. Something that I can say, look, I did this. This is how I contributed to my salvation. But I can't say that because I contributed nothing on my own to salvation. So then he goes on in verse 28. He says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So here's the conclusion to that. Justification is by faith apart from works of the law. Faith and faith alone is the idea here. Same as what he said back up in verses 19 through 21. The law revealed sin. God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. Now here, justification is apart from the works of the law. The exact same idea. Now this specifically mentions works of the law, but don't get the wrong idea here. There aren't any works that can justify someone. If the law that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai, if those commands weren't able to justify someone, then who could give a, command, a list of commands that could? No one. There's no other list either. So make sure you keep that in mind. This isn't saying that the law couldn't do it, but sacraments can, or baptism can, or insert your own works-based system. It's faith alone, period. No works are involved here. Now, I know we're going over these verses very quickly, fairly quickly, but we'll, get more, we'll talk more about these when we get into chapter 4. So look at the next question he asks in verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. The next question is a response to the likely objection from the Jews once again. Based on what he said previously, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God of Jews only? Is he not of Gentiles also? What's he getting at here with this question? Well, again, the Jews looked at themselves as out on an island, right? The only ones who were special because they had been given great blessings by God. There's no denying that they hadn't been given great blessings by God. But when you take justification away from their understanding of the law, which is where they had mistakenly placed it, that opens up that concept to not just those who are under the law. 
Remember, the, the law was for the nation of Israel. It was given to them. It was to help them. But it didn't provide salvation. Salvation comes from faith alone, apart from the law. One of the things that is made clear in the New Testament, starting in Acts chapter 10 with Peter, is that salvation is also available to Gentiles in the same way that it was available to Jews. And if you remember back in verse 16 of chapter 1 again, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Who can believe it? Who can be saved through the gospel? Jew or Gentile. And again, that's everyone. There's no one outside those two groups. So what Paul is stating here is that if there's only one God, and there is, the Jews knew without a doubt that there was only one God. There are many, many times throughout the Old Testament where you can point to to say that they know there's one God. Then that one God must be the God of not only the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. Because there's only one God. He is God. He is God of everything. He's God of everyone. And so he's God of both Jew and Gentile. And so having established that, that's where verse 30 comes in. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. This verse here is going to unfold where he's going in chapter 4. Salvation by faith for everyone who believes. Jew or Gentile, circumcision or uncircumcision, it's all the same. God the one and only God has one plan for salvation. Anyone who is going to be saved, that he will justify, must come to him through saving faith. No matter who you are, where you're from, any of that. It's the same way of salvation for anyone. What we'll see in our next study in chapter 4 is that the way that God saved one person, Abraham, is the way that he saves everyone. The way of salvation has always been and will always be the same. And again, there is one God, there is only one plan, and we'll get into this in more detail in our next lesson. So here, again, we're just touching on it. Paul's introducing it with these questions. But we'll see that certain aspects that people hold on to even today, circumcision, baptism, are things that cannot be requirements. For salvation, they are works that have no place in the discussion on salvation. Faith and faith alone. Verse 31, we'll take a look at the last verse of the chapters we end for today. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Again, where would the discussion go? What would be the natural conclusion to what Paul has been talking about here? You keep saying, apart from the law, Paul, I guess the law is worthless. I guess the, the law never really had a purpose. Meganoito, may it never be. That's our emphatic denial again that we saw earlier in the chapter. God forbid, absolutely not. Justification by faith doesn't nullify the law. Why not? Because the law never justified anyone. This is an idea that we need to make sure that we understand the law never saved anyone. What did it do? Back up in verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It revealed sin. It showed people their sin. It drove people to God, to his mercy, 
showed them the sacrifices, the blood that was required for payment, reminded them of their need for a Savior, served as a reminder that God had promised a Savior. Justification by faith doesn't invalidate the law. It establishes it. It proves it. It shows that the faith that was placed in God because of the revelation of sin found in the law was valid because by that faith a person was justified. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior who was promised, He came. He was publicly displayed for all to see those sins that the Jews and the Gentiles incurred that they were guilty of, that they offered sacrifices for on the altar of the temple, sprinkled the blood of on the mercy seat. They were all taken care of fully and finally on the cross. That payment was made. That is where salvation is found. Believing in that redemptive act that Christ made on our behalf on the cross, taking the wrath of God upon himself in full. Is this what we're putting our trust in? Is this what we've believed in? I pray that it is. I pray that we all have come to that realization that we are sinners and that we cannot achieve righteousness on our own in any way. No act. Not keeping the Ten Commandments, not baptism, not regular church attendance. None of those things matter. None of that does anything. Only faith in the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross matters. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. We give you praise, Lord, for this marvelous passage of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the gift that you've given us in your Son on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you provided. We thank you, Lord, for just the way in which we can be reconciled to you through faith. I praise you, Lord, and I thank you for uh, just allowing us to study this passage of Scripture. Help us to understand it. Help us, Lord, to be able to use this in our lives. And, and most of all, Lord, help us to be able to share this with others in an understanding way. Pray, Lord, that you would use us mightily in bringing the gospel to people and that we would see them saved, Lord, to this same way uh, that you saved us. We thank you, Lord, so much for our time here together. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the next hour as well as we hear the word once again. Just pray that you would give us understanding. Pray, Lord, that we would have uh, a good time of worship, a time of uh, fellowship, and, and pray, Lord, that we would just honor you with all that we do here the rest of the day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.